A study of the hill tribes of Southeast Asia titled The Art of Not Being Governed provided a fresh take. The author, James C. Scott, posits that the hill tribes were not, quote, left behind by the valley states, but instead composed of refugees from the negative consequences of state-making down in the valleys, bondage, tribute, slavery, war, epidemics, and more. The rough terrain in the hills served as a natural impediment to absorption by the state. The Best in Bitcoin Made Audible I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. We have got an awesome read today. Um, Thank you. Somebody in the Audionauts actually recommended this to me. Um, It is from Bitcoin Magazine and is written by Captain Sid, which will be the first read from Captain Sid, if I'm not mistaken. I don't know. We're 650 some odd reads in. I I could be wrong about that. But it's called Bitcoin is the Hills. And it's it's a fascinating look. Um, it, it kind of leans on the 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 story of history and the perspective laid out in the book by James uh, James Scott, The Art of Not Being Governed, um, which I have actually just ordered today because I realized I did not have a copy of. Um, but this is just a really, really great piece. And uh, such a fun perspective to hit about how Bitcoin is essentially a new check on state power on the modern technological state in the new in the new digital environment. Um, and I will let I will let Captain Sid lay out the argument, and we will go ahead and jump into it with no more delay, except for one final thank you to our amazing sponsors. And they are CoinKite, the makers of the cold card hardware wallet, the cold card MK4, the tap signer, the block clock, literally the solution to all of your Bitcoin hardware problems, to Swan Bitcoin, which is where do I get my Bitcoin from to put on my cold card? It's Swan. I stack every single week, plus I every time the price drops, I run over there and I stack some more. Um, Swan Bitcoin is the best Bitcoin onboarding experience and the easiest way to buy Bitcoin. And then, of course, the Fold card. The Fold app and the Fold debit card, man, there is no better way to do fiat. Get sats back on literally everything you buy. There is no way I could go back to a normal bank debit card. Luckily, I don't have to. I get sats back on everything I do. And you can too with the Fold card. 20% 20% off with code Bitcoin Audible, plus discounts for all these guys and my special links in the show notes. Check them out. And with that, let's get into today's read from Bitcoin Magazine, and it's titled Bitcoin is the Hills by Captain Sid. The Hills once provided a check on the overreaches of state making. Today, Bitcoin provides that check. 
This is an opinion editorial by Captain Sid, a finance writer and explorer of Bitcoin culture. I've spent most of the last three years living in the mountainous region of northern Thailand. Nestled in the hills all around the valleys live, quote, hill tribes, with names like the Akka, Hmong, and Lahu. Each has their own traditional dress, unique language, and local foods. To many of us living in the valley cities, especially foreigners like myself from far-flung places, these hill tribes seem left behind by the slow march of civilizational progress. They are often described as, quote, our living ancestors, euphemistically referred to as disadvantaged. Many live in bamboo huts and lack access to education, electricity, and many trappings of modern life the rest of us rely on every day. At a distance, these impressions make sense. Once I had a few substantive conversations with these people, however, my understanding shifted. I recognized my implicit association between, quote, civilized and the gleaming cities of modern nation-states might be completely wrong. I witnessed incredible love, community, and wealth in the hills, in amounts I had never imagined prior. I wondered what I and many others might be missing about these people, their histories, societies, and cultural practices. What might a new understanding of the hill tribes reflect about modern society? A study of the hill tribes of Southeast Asia titled The Art of Not Being Governed provided a fresh take. The author, James C. Scott, posits that the hill tribes were not, quote, left behind by the valley states, but instead composed of refugees from the negative consequences of state-making down in the valleys. Bondage, tribute, slavery, war epidemics, and more. The rough terrain in the hills served as a natural impediment to absorption by the state. Quote, States have encouraged, whenever possible, cash, monocropping, plantation-style agriculture in place of the more biodiverse forms of cultivation that prevailed earlier. James C. Scott from The Art of Not Being Governed. The author goes into further detail on how the factors necessary for states to arise necessarily brought negative consequences. For that analysis, you will need to read the book. A link will be available in the show notes. The Interplay of Hills and States When states arose at times in the valleys, they provided benefits like security in exchange for drawbacks, occasional famine, epidemics, bondage, wars, and more. These opposing forces motivated a voluntary movement of people in and out of the hills over the course of history. This movement put a check on the growth and power of states. History, as taught in state-sponsored classrooms all around the world, obscures this ebb and flow between states and hinterlands, putting forward a one-way march of civilizational progress. In this history, bureaucrats gradually envelop the world in the warm embrace of the nation-state, bringing peace and security to all. This teaching fails to highlight that, quote, for much of history, living within or outside the state or in an intermediate zone, was a choice, one that might be revised as the circumstances warranted, as Scott writes. The ability of people to opt out, of course, varied from time to time across landscapes. According to the author's research, the Southeast Asian Massif 
provided fertile ground for opting out of valley states up until the 20th century. Quote, The attempt to fully incorporate hill peoples has been culturally styled as development, economic progress, literacy, and social integration. In practice, it has meant something else. The objective has been less to make them productive than to ensure that their economic activity was legible, taxable, assessable, and confiscatable, or, failing that, to replace it with forms of production that were. James C. Scott, The Art of Not Being Governed The diverse and impermanent farming and cultural practices of many modern hill people looks to us raised in nation-states as a result of lack of access to education and opportunity. However, they may represent a way to, quote, evade both state capture and state formation, Scott writes. This resonates with my, albeit very limited, experiences with the people of the hills. They are aware of the outside world and sometimes travel to work in the city centers. Yet few leave the hills for good, choosing instead to come back to their communities even after learning about the world and immersing themselves in city life. Modern Technology Eliminates the Hills The ability of the hills to check state power depends on a difficulty in projecting power, physically, politically, and culturally, across far distances and rough terrain. The advent of distance-crushing technologies such as durable asphalt roads, railways, fossil fuels, radio, television, and the internet changed this calculus drastically eliminating the hills as a viable refuge from state power. Physically, technologies such as roads and vehicles make it easier for state surveyors and tax collectors to reach far-flung villages to collect tax on land and production. Culturally, technologies such as radio and television allow the state to project messages over the air to distant pockets of people, repeating the glory and ideals of the state to anyone who will hear them. Financial tools can also contribute to a type of state control by extending copious credit and encouraging individuals to overextend themselves into agricultural equipment, upgraded cars, or big homes. Debt adds up, creating new classes of indentured servants liable to banks and the state. Quote, Physical flight, the bedrock of popular freedom, was the principal check on state power. James C. Scott. These changes together result in an elimination of the hills as a refuge from the state power, and therefore as a check on it. Moving to remote physical spaces no longer serves as a viable escape from taxation or bondage, as state power extends over almost every physical corner of today's earth, and overwhelmingly the areas which support human life. However, the hills as a check on state power also relies on states needing bodies to perform work and fight in wars. Modern nation-states have less need for more human beings than those of antiquity. Something else now plays a major role in state power. The Source of Nation-State Power Ancient nation-states derived much of their power from their control of humans and arable land. Therefore, the hills as physical refuge provided an escape valve and check on the power of nation-states. 
one less farmer and tended piece of land directly impacted the power and influence of the court. Today, capital plays a much larger role than humans and arable land in the accumulation and maintenance of state power. One diesel engine can do the work of hundreds of humans or work animals, and a drone can strike more targets at further distances than a squad of soldiers. In my interpretation here, capital means anything from money to machinery to creativity, all of which multiply the effectiveness of humans and land in producing the riches that sustain a state. Some might object that in many cases, the state does not own any of this capital. So how does this capital play a role in state power? Who owns a piece of capital means less than the ability of the state to seize or tax that capital in times of need. Many modern states allow their subjects to own their lands and productive capital, with the threat of jail time should subjects fail to pay any taxes levied. When state subjects lack mechanisms to effectively resist the state or opt out with their capital intact, the state has them over a barrel. So while the hills and physical spaces no longer present a check on state power, the land and humans that once escaped to the hills have little to do with the power of modern states. What would present a significant check on modern state power is a hill or hinterland for capital. The Hills for Capital a check on the power of modern nation-states would need to allow individuals to move their capital out of the reaches of the state, just as people once fled to the hills to escape the negative consequences of ancient nation-states. What would a hinterland for capital look like? A hinterland for capital would need to satisfy a few criteria. 1. Portable. The form your capital takes must be easy to take with you. 2. Divisible. If you intend to live off your capital, you need to be able to part with pieces of it at a time to live off. 3. Tax and seizure resistant. The form your capital takes must resist taxation and potentially seizure by states. 4. Value storing. The form your capital takes must store its value over long periods of time. It must be reliably scarce yet widely desirable. Without this, you risk losing your capital even if the state cannot reach it. Let's make this example a bit more personal and say you have a large sum of savings in your local currency. However, you disagree deeply with the government you live under and do not feel as if your voice matters in the halls of your state. Maybe you disagree with funding a police force that wantonly kills people who look like you. Or you believe well-connected corporations get the better end of the deal. Or you simply do not want to keep sweating away in an economic system where prices grow faster than wages. You want to send your capital to the hills, opting out of state control. Where do you put your capital to keep it out of the state's hands? Currency is your first option. Currency is highly portable as well as divisible, making it easy to travel with and spend down incrementally. However, currency suffers from its physicality. A motivated state can seize it from you in person or more easily through your bank should you choose to store your savings with one. Even worse, currencies the world over are not scarce commodities in any sense. Central banks have the ability to increase their supply with the stroke of a key, 
and they do this with reckless abandon. Each new unit of currency printed debases the value of the currency you hold. Even if you manage to hide your savings from the state, they can debase its value to zero. Natural resources and foodstuffs seem like a practical option for storing capital. You could stockpile fuels like coal and oil, invest in solar panels and stash prepped food in an RV or bunker, prepper style. While you may be able to live off-grid in the event of a societal collapse, you're hardly opting out of state control. The prepper example here differs little from the traditional run-to-the-hills escape from your oppressive state, which modern technology rendered ineffective. Real estate, financial instruments, and capital investments in a business are another option. These each store value fairly well, at least historically, and can even generate you a positive cash flow should you pick the right investments. However, they suffer from a lack of portability, divisibility, and resistance to tax and seizure. Real estate is a sitting duck, registered with state authorities and impossible to move. Financial instruments today almost always live within the databases of third parties liable and loyal to state orders far more than you, the investor. Businesses usually have a physical footprint and deep roots in the established legal and financial systems surveyed by states, so capital investments there will hardly resist tax and seizure. Gold may look like an obvious candidate. For centuries, humans have valued this shiny rock and used it in global trade. Where gold shines in portability and value storage, it dulls against the tools of the modern state for identification and appropriation of physical goods. You may be able to hide gold on your person, but any border guard with half an eye open will surely fleece it. What if you could store your capital in a commodity that moved at the speed of light, divided into infinitesimally small quantities with ease, stored in your brain, and displayed its scarcity with mathematical certainty? This would absolutely smash our alternative stores of capital on the dimensions of portability, divisibility, tax and seizure resistance, and ability to store value over time. This would provide a revolutionary check on the growth of state power and a strong refuge for free people and their capital. Discovering the Hills for Capital no physical form of capital gives us strong assurances against punitive taxation or state seizure, given the power of modern states over the physical domain. The hills for capital would need to be digital. However, anyone can copy and paste a digital good and take it for themselves, which is not what we desire when storing capital for any amount of time. Digital systems which enforce scarcity, like modern bank accounts, suffer from a different problem. Control. Scarcity requires administrators with special permissions to update and edit the system. Participants in that system must trust administrators not to change the rules or affect the scarcity within the system. What we need is a scarce digital good with assurances that no person or state will ever control the system. What digital systems do give us is portability, divisibility, and the ability to move without connection to our physical bodies and state-registered identities. What systems grant those benefits 
along with provable scarcity. There is only one digital good we know of that satisfies all the criteria to be the hills for capital. Bitcoin. Bitcoin provides benefits unique to a digital commodity. Instant transfer anywhere in the world. Deep divisibility. Incredible privacy and provable scarcity. A memorized seed phrase is out of reach from even the most prying strip search, and a well-handled Bitcoin UTXO following best privacy practices bears no relationship to any entities registered with or surveilled by a state. The Bitcoin protocol ensures scarcity, giving us simple rules for a finite commodity with strong assurances against any state or ruler co-opting the system for their own benefit. Bitcoin gives any individual the power to take their capital to the hinterlands, out of state control, in a time when states have few checks on their power and many tools for surveillance, taxation, wealth appropriation, and war at their fingertips. Providing a hinterland for capital means Bitcoin represents a new check on the excesses of state power, in a time when former options for exit are quickly disappearing. Whether you choose to stay within a state or run to the hills, Bitcoin is an ever-present check on state power. And that is Bitcoin is the Hills by Captain Sid. Uh, let's take a quick break real fast at our sponsor, and then I want to do a short guy's take on this piece. So, there happens to be a critical part of this thesis of how Bitcoin provides a check on state power, and that is that the individual holds their own keys. And it is damn hard to beat the cold card hardware wallet. If you have your Bitcoin on an exchange, you might as well hold equity. Just buy some permissioned financial instrument because you are beholden to the exchange, the exchange is beholden to the government. Bitcoin that you hold yourself using a cold card for secure signing is true self-ownership. And not only that, the cold card MK4 happens to be one of the most versatile wallets out there as well. You can use it with a micro SD card, um, and you can actually do a micro SD backup as well, which is super simple and quick. It's totally air-gapped if you're using the card, or you can use it with a USB-C cord. You can use it via NFC, so you can literally just tap your mobile phone and use it on a mobile wallet, or you can even use it as a virtual disk. Plus, a lot of these make it perfect for multi-sig setups. Not to mention the tap signers, which are just the cards. They're basically cards with an embedded key um, so that you can use them with mobile. CoinKite makes these as well. You can find them right in the store. They are an awesome addition to any multi-sig setup, um, particularly on mobile just because of how easy they are to use. Or honestly, you could just have a super simple way to just use a mobile wallet with a separated key. But if you haven't looked into this yet, if you haven't checked out the cold card or the tap signers or anything else they have on the store, you have got to check it out. 5% off with everything in the store, code Bitcoin Audible. The cold card, the tap signers, the steel seed backups, the block clock, all of it. Go to guyswan.com slash cold card and use code Bitcoin Audible for 5% off everything in the store. All right. So this 
piece was really good. I haven't thought about, and I'm not actually read this either. I've read a bunch of different sections from this book, um, like excerpts that I'd seen posted somewhere, and I had intended to get it. It was actually, I actually read this article and immediately put in an order for a hard copy of The Art of Not Being Governed because I've heard about this enough times that I'm honestly surprised that I have not gotten it and read it. Um, but uh, uh, it's such a fascinating thesis. And one of the things that like really stood out to me and has always been kind of a fun thought experiment because I think the the vision of like looking at history from the context of like where you are outward always comes with an incredible bias in the fact that the society itself always thinks that it's the peak, you know, like, like the way the current structure is always assumes that it is civilization. It is progress. And uh, there was particularly there's like the there's a line that I uh, snagged from this is history as taught in state sponsored classrooms all around the world obscures this ebb and flow between states and hinterlands, putting forward a one way march of civilizational progress. And it's just interesting to think about how the state obviously is going to see this as like using the term living ancestors uh, that he used to describe like the the villages and the other like small societies among the hills or whatever that this was how they were referred to is such a great example of kind of the arrogance of that view that the modern nation state is the peak of civilization and we're seeing people who are just basically stuck in the past when the reality of history is more, I love the, the idea of the ebb and flow of people trying to escape from underneath the consequences of the state apparatus. Because despite its ability to scale capital, and uh, in fact, its incredible ability to scale violence, it does have consequences. It has, it has the consequences of that scale because it does not scale sustainably. It does not scale evenly. And if you kind of flip it on its head, if you look from the other perspective, it's just one of those assumptions about how society sees itself, how someone in a framework, in a mental framework of let's compare everything to my civilization rather than mine to theirs, like et cetera, like however you want to describe that framework, but that you view that history from a different lens and that's often the only way to see how the world actually works rather than how the state perceives it to work for its, for its dominance. And understand when I say the state here, obviously it's not a person, but it is a way of thinking. It is, in fact, an institution. It is, it is much like a religion. It's a frame of reference for how to see the world and how to see people. In fact, religion is a really great way to describe it because it is a religion of authority. It is the idea that authority is more important. There is some expert, there is some leader, there is some ruler who has some, some ability to make determinations and uh use violence in a way that no one else is allowed to use you know like like just from the concept like it's amazing how 
self-contradictory the entire concept of the state is, is that we don't have the right to openly assault each other. We don't have the right to steal from each other. But somehow, if we get together and there's like a bunch of us and we choose to steal from like a large group or a certain type of people, well, then it's okay because we've delegated it to some authority. But we never had the right to delegate it in the beginning, like to begin with. Like we never had the right to steal from someone. How could you delegate something that you don't have? It's like saying I don't have any money, but I'm going to give, but we're all going to get together and we're all broke, but we're going to have this one person who is now just rich because we have delegated the money that we don't have to that person. Like even the most, the simplest of the rhetoric of the state institution is, is a contradiction. It makes no logical, there's no logical path from its beginnings to its conclusion. The only outcome, the only, th the only fundamental piece of the entire thing is the belief that there should be somebody in charge and that person in charge has special rights and special powers that nobody has. It's a belief in rulers. It's just a huge number of variations on exactly how we come to decide who that ruler is. But all of that stuff is arbitrary. It's all, you know, different cogs trying to build the same clock. So when I say the state, I mean that mode of thinking, that ideology, because it sees the world a certain way. It sees people a certain way. It sees institutions a certain way. And if you don't step outside of that, if you don't kind of like act like you're an alien looking from the outside in and objectively just look well, what's the relationship between these people? What's happening here? Like, what does one person have to believe to allow this to happen? And is this a good thing? Is this actually a positive? Is this sustainable civilization? Like, that's the only way to actually understand or see coming the collapse of an empire. Like, by asking the empire what it thinks, the, the thinking that has produced the empire, what it thinks about its own power and its influence and, you know, its trajectory, it's never going to understand when it's, it's lost the battle, so to speak. It's always going to see history through the lens of its conquest and its power. In the same, it's like, it's like the case of Rome. You know, the Roman, we talk about all the time, the Roman Empire collapsed and this was the time and these are the leaders who shifted and this is when this person has had control, but it's only because we're out of the Roman Empire. We're not part of it that we can look back and kind of easily see, okay, well, this looks like the point in which the power was truly usurped or the, the unsustainability of how it was built finally came to, you know, its end game, came to its conclusion. But the Roman population, if you actually look into how things were then, like, the Roman Empire was it. Like, they were the bee's knees. Like, they were everything to the world. It took generations for them to actually socially admit that the Roman Empire was no longer the Roman Empire. It, with the gift of hindsight, we can just pick and choose and be like, okay, well, this is when the power was really gone. But it took the better part of a century for, his, for the population to basically be out of denial that the Roman Empire just wasn't the Roman Empire anymore. That Rome wasn't the center of the universe. And in that same way, we have to assume that that aspect of humanity continues to exist today. I 
genuinely kind of, depending on how things unfold in the next 30 to 40 years, I think we could look back and already see our time, like some critical things that have happened in the last four or five years that could indicate the end of an empire, that it could indicate the end of U.S. dominance. Now, we could actually swing back. It totally depends on future trajectory, but we're absolutely in many, many people. The, the overwhelming majority of the mainstream is in deep denial, has absolutely no clue what is happening. They're 100% blind to what's going on, and they can't even fathom that something outside... I mean, they call people who even question political authority right now domestic terrorists and threats to society. It's because society is collapsing, and they're, they're latching on to the last vestiges of a bloated unbelievably corrupt money printing scam that has just been propped up by an unbelievably productive market that it, that it has siphoned all of the wealth from it is just just a massive blood sucking leviathan but it's dying we're watching it die right now it's clinging desperately to the fact that it, wa it wants to keep the position that it is. It wants to keep the appearance of this godlike power. But it's falling apart everywhere. The petrodollar is falling apart. Supply chains are falling apart. There's protests all across the world. Trust is breaking down in all of our major institutions. Mainstream trust has never been so low. And the narratives are splitting up into a thousand different ways. And all of this is only going to accelerate it's not it's not stopping it's not slowing down it's not going to turn back the other way we're literally barreling into a future at like a million miles an hour with an unbelievable amount of momentum and there's going to be this huge shift in so many of the things that we take for granted right now are going to start breaking down and we're going to have to rebuild so fast and it's going to happen really really fast but simply put, there's no going back. The world is going to be in a very, very different place on the other side of this. This is why it is critical that we understand and we use the tools that do exactly this. The more people we can get to, hold, to run to the hills, the more capital and the more people, the more human lives we can protect from the, from the fallout of this bloated, unsustainable system, the better. That is what we need to do. And Bitcoin is at the very heart of this. And all you have to do is look at what is happening in the EU right now. Weeks ago, this was modern. This was the modern world. This was, you know, the peak of wealth and privilege. Look at the cost of their energy. In days, this changed. People are talking about going from like 200 pound bills to 1200 pounds. 4x, 5x, I've even seen like 10x increases in the cost of energy in no time. If we don't change course, if we don't recognize, if we don't step back and look at what is happening, and we don't stop this insanity, if we don't admit that we have been on the wrong path for like 50 years, we have a stupid ideology of how society should be run and it has done nothing but corrupt and bleed us of all of our working capital and it is going to make us destitute. 
If we do not recognize that and we do not turn around, we don't protect ourselves and our capital and our family from this reality, we will pay for it. But the craziest thing, the craziest thing is that the, the foundation of the state itself is based on the scalability of direct violence, of violence against a population. And Bitcoin fundamentally changes this in a crazy, crazy huge way. Because money, money, Bitcoin and money is the promise of resources from the rest of society. As that promise moves more and more to the into the digital sphere that has no explicit location it has no explicit geographic limitation on what capital is it, it is it essentially is promised to it you know like the dollar well the dollar is a bad example because the dollar is the global reserve so you can buy stuff with the dollar almost everywhere but you know the franc the the ruble the yuan like these things are largely geographically and jurisdictionally isolated. So when you're, t and, and obviously they are also beholden to the institution that creates them and their value can be essentially debased infinitely to, to, the, to the fact that like it's just all completely confiscated. But it is also a promise of a specific society. A ruble is essentially a promise of trade with the Russian society, with the Russian civilization. A Bitcoin is a promise to trade with the Bitcoin society, with Bitcoiners everywhere in the world. Everyone who believes and trusts the promise of Bitcoin, which means that it is jurisdictionless. It is global. It does not have a state. It's not a promise from some individual. It's a promise from all of society that trusts that it is a good money, and that continues to grow. And as that, as that exists... It, or as that grows, you can essentially devalue a country and remove your capital from it. You can remove the promise of capital from its connection, from its reliance on the nation state, which right now, all of it is derived from the nation state. The nation state is a linchpin in every monetary promise the world over. The separation of money and state is not a small deal. It's a very, very big deal. It is significant to the point of going back millennia, trying to find things to compare it to. And then at the same time that we're in this environment where trust is breaking down and all of this stuff is accelerating, I'm not sure if you've been watching what's happening with AI lately and machine learning systems and models, but holy crap, as this stuff is popping up, in an extraordinary fashion to where images and very soon video simply can't be trusted, not even if it's live. I mean, we're talking about the point where we're, in, we're, we're at a place where apps on a social media can change your face live while you're talking. I don't, like, it seems like a fun game. It seems like something that's really cool and I love to play with it. Yeah, I want to download the app on my phone, but I don't, think I, there is there is a massive massive amount to unpack with the impact the impact of a technology that makes it so that anything from a distance anything from a large massive distant institution from a person from the president 
from anybody you've never met in person and confirmed for yourself is untrustworthy. An image of an event is no longer reliable. A video of an event is no longer reliable. It's no longer proof that any of this stuff actually happened. We are entering that world very, very quickly. And I do not think we realize how important the impact of that is. And what does it mean? How the hell do you trust a government if you can't even trust an image of who your president is? Think about that. It could all be fake. Trust is going to degrade at an exponential rate. It's going to break down massively, and it's going to cascade with probably a series of stories that will turn out to be 100% false, and they will, they will have had huge, huge impact. It will be, you know, in big embarrassing things, you know, it, like that's how, that's how a lot of these things move, is that like things build up, pressure builds up, the techno technological imbalance builds up, and then, you know, snap, there's something, something big happens, some huge embarrassment happens, or some massive, massive lie spreads all the way around the world, and then everybody realizes they were duped. And when that happens, there's no going back. There's no way to rebuild trust in something that is not verifiable. This is why, like, I know, like, everybody's just like, oh, fun social media protocols and stuff. And, like, there's lots of great peer-to-peer -to -peer toy, uh, toys to play with. But what Synonym is building, I think, is fundamentally a huge, huge need. Like, what John Carvalho and Synonym and Tether and Hole Punch and all of these things, this is why, one of the reasons why this is so important to me and why I, I keep talking about this, no matter who the hell I'm talking to, is because I, I, can't, it, I can't get it out of my head, but a trust model, a, trust relation, a trusted relationship, the ability to weight information that you find on the internet through the relationships that you do know and you can trust, the people that you meet in person. We have to have a degree of verifiability in the digital space that lines up with the trust we've accumulated in physical space, the trusted relationships that we have with the people we actually know, and to go out steps from there, who do they trust? Who have they met in person that I am not connected to? I think trust is going to be in, in the same way that information and metadata and all of these things have become a multi-billion dollar industry. They become a massive commodity. And everybody's attention is like the thing in the network age, in the platform age, which I think we're actually coming to the conclusion of. I think, I think things are going to change massively and we're going to move to network protocols. But obviously there's still a hell of a transition to go there and we're still transitioning into the network era um, or the platform era as the transition out, I believe, is beginning. So the, the previous phase shift is in basically massive full swing and has reached peak momentum but the new phase shift i believe we're witnessing we're we're watching it begin right now but post our current era where where you know surveillance data where um you know all of your contacts list and grabbing 15 seconds of your attention that is the major that is the major commodity in our day and age today i believe we are moving into one where trust 
is the major commodity. Provable, verifiable relationships are the commodity. And cryptographic signatures in the digital sphere that let you know who you are interacting with because there's no other mechanism to prove it. You can't do a video call. You can't call them up on the phone. You can't trust a picture with a date and, you know, the newspaper from today because it can all be randomly and instantly generated by a machine learning algorithm. Those who understand and begin using the keys, begin using the new models of trust before everybody else will benefit massively from it. The same way that those who have invested in Bitcoin are going to have already and will continue to benefit massively from those who still think trusted, centralized fiat money is our future, because it's not. In that same way, the people who do not realize that trust is breaking down, that the assumptions that our institutions and that the news you hear and that the shit you see could actually be real, is actually real, and that you, you rely on it, without a cryptographic signature, without, without a trusted relationship that you've built up in the real world, those people are going to pay, pay the price because they are going to be blindsided when they wake up and realize that they are not living in the world that they think they are living in. I don't know. I don't know. This is, I've, been, I've been on an AI kick lately. I've been it's installed Stable Diffusion, uh, the, I've been using Midjourney. I've been using Dolly 2. Um, like I have kind of gone down that rabbit hole pretty major. And then also the codex and stuff that they have where you can literally prompt it to write code. Like you want it to do a certain thing and you say, just like tech, like typing in a prompt for an image, just saying like, I want to see a, you know, uh, astronaut on the beach. And then it plops out that image. Well, you can literally do the same thing with code. Um, and these things are going to iterate so fast. Stable Diffusion is the open source one, and in like a week, there's like 50 or 100 major tools that have dropped. People have already done a plug-in so that you can do it in Krita and uh, Photoshop and Blender. Like, you can use it to create textures. Like, it's really, really crazy how fast this stuff is moving. And as this like hits an ecosystem where people are just I mean, this is just going to get to the point I mean if I'm sure uh, I'll actually post a link to uh, Dergigi's thread um, I believe these were all generated by him I'm not sure but um, just images that were generated from one of the AIs I'm, I'm not sure which one but it's just crazy it's crazy some of them look legitimately real but I just don't think the state survives in this new world in its current form. I think we're, especially with the level of corruption and the capacity to just obliterate resources, to just utterly and like consume a staggering amount of resources that just vanish, just total flat consumption, like the state produces zero the ability to have these tools in the hands of every individual, like obviously the state, like obviously a large institution or apparatus will always have the power to use this like more aggressively or in like a broader sense. But holy crap, the ability to use this at a micro level, the ability for the individual to have these same tools, this will be, this will be the ultimate 
equalizer. Um, and and ultimately, this is why it, this is one of the reasons why I think Bitcoin is going to be so crucial. Like there are all the normal economic reasons, all the normal economic reasons for a sound money, all the normal technological reasons for its payment network and the lightning, the ability for lightning to do cross-border and massive amounts of liquidity and scale and all of these things. But I really think at the heart of all of it is trust. And that without cryptographic proof, without cryptographic identity, without keys that you recognize as a person... I don't think we will have a way to discern genuine information in the digital sphere anymore. It will have to be through trusted circles. And reliable exchange, especially on a global level, will have to happen with an independent medium because the institutions that you normally can trust or that you at least normally can feel you have some idea of what they are in the world we're going to watch the threads of that relationship just just fray until there's nothing left. So, anyway, that's just my ramblings for today. I thought this was a really great piece. I didn't even talk about a lot of things. Like, I just kind of talked about the implementations. I will have the link to... Um, a great job to Captain Sid. Um, this was... This really was a great analogy, and I think uh, it's such a fascinating way to or fascinating perspective to put this in, that Bitcoin is essentially the return of the hills within the the technological environment that the nation state now lives in. And I hope everyone is preparing. I hope everyone is learning how to get to the hills, you know, learning the right tools and obviously stacking sats every single day, stacking on Swan, stacking with Fold, and sticking that shit on your cold card because, whew, I don't know, that's at least my strategy. I don't know of a better way to prepare for this outside of just collecting as much capital, like getting as much capital secured in my ownership as possible before we get there and then, you know, investing a little bit of popcorn because it's going to be a hell of a ride. Um, and uh, I'll be here with Bitcoin Audible to tell you all about it, to watch the shit hit the fan. It's gonna be a it's gonna be a great ride. I hope you join me. Subscribe to the show, and we will learn about all of it together here on Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan. Thank you guys so much for listening. Don't forget to check out the show notes for the book and our amazing sponsors. And until next time, everybody, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.